All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 is where we're going to be. Um, while you're turning there, I am not sick, but I am losing my voice because apparently I'm allergic to the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I don't know if I'm the only one on this, but it's really bad. So if I just like stop talking and sit down at some point, uh, that's why. So losing my voice, thanks for being with us. Uh, the last two weeks, we've been looking at some really heavy and weighty things. We've been talking about the sacredness and dignity of human life, of every human life from the womb to the tomb. And so some of you, I know you showed up and you're like, what other crazy controversial topic will we get today? But actually today we're back in the book of Acts. So if you've been out for a little bit, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts and we're in chapter 19. We actually have only one more week and we're gonna close out the rest of the book and just give you a flyby of this as we wrap it up. Today we're gonna be in chapter 19 and we're gonna be looking at something that, this concept of revival. Now, when I say this concept of revival, that word revival means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Uh, if If you're from the South, the way that you envision revival is something that you schedule where a guest preacher will come in and he'll kind of yell his sermons for about a week and then pack up his bags and move on to another city and life quickly just goes back to the way things were. That's if you're from the South. If you grew up in a, in a, a Pentecostal, tr- Pentecostal tradition, any Pentecostal tradition people, usually you're the ones that are like, amen, shouting, yelling, we like you, we need more of you. Uh, if you grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, then the way that you think of revival is not a scheduled event. It's more of a kind of day-to-day regular Christianity. And it's just the expectation that God is going to move and pour out his spirit in extravagant, dramatic ways every single week, all the time. That's kind of the way that you think of revival. It's just normal, average Christianity. And then if you're not a Christian and you're with us, let me just say this. Man, we're thrilled that you're with us. We know it takes a lot of boldness to come into a church. All the questions that you have, the doubts, the skepticism, we may not have all the answers, but we're committed to walking with you and trying to figure it out. So thank you for being with us. When you hear the concept of, of revival, it probably sounds weird to you because you, you know probably enough about Christianity to know that Christianity is about finding life in God. It's about God uh, giving his life to us. So if Christianity is about finding our life in God, then why does something that's been made alive need to be revived? So no matter where you come from, this, this concept of revival is just a confusing concept and we all walk in with our own kind of notions and ideas of what that word means. So what is it? What is revival? And maybe the bigger, better question, the more important question, why does it matter for us today here in Oklahoma? Honestly, why does revival matter for you and for me today? Well, those are the questions that I want to answer with you, and I want to do it by looking at Acts 19. Now, we've already looked at part of Acts 19. I want to look at the rest of it with you and some of the stuff we've already seen, but from a different angle, because what happens in this chapter is honestly what we would call a revival. God was moving and pouring out his spirit in dramatic ways, and here's the thing I want you to see. It was so powerful, this move of God was so powerful, so, so pungent that, that even the, the cultural fabric of the city, the economic fabric of the city started to change as a result of this powerful work of God. 
and I'll just lay my cards out on the table with you. My hope today, the, the thing that I'm praying happens is that when you see the way that God was moving in the city, that it would put something inside of you where you just want God to move like that again, but in your own life and in our city too. That's my hope is that it, you'd, you'd get this, this desire that you can't seem to shake for God to pour out his spirit in dramatic, powerful ways. So if you're with me, let's kick it off and look at verse 11. Now we're gonna bounce around a little bit, but look at verse 11. <clears throat> and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is Paul the apostle. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. We'll get back to that very weird verse in just a minute. Look, look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That, that, that means that the name of the Lord Jesus was praised enthusiastically. Now look at what happens next. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. In our day and age, that would be about $6 million worth of magic books. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now we'll keep going in just a minute, but I wanna pause here. Um, some of what we just read, quite honestly, is best described as Revival, And we'll define that in just a minute. But some of what we just read is an unusual, powerful move of God. But other elements of what we just read is quite honestly just basic, normal, essential Christianity. Like, like two things stick out that are not spectacular. This is not unusual Christianity. This is just normal Christianity. Here's the first thing that we see happening. The name of Jesus was being extolled by these Christians. Now, here's what that means. Like, that means that the, the name of Jesus is, a, is kind of a shorthand way to describe, if you take all of the aspects of who God is, all of his character, everything about him, and you add it all together, that's, that's the name of Jesus. It's everything that Jesus is and represents. And what's happening here is that Christians in Ephesus are extolling Jesus's name. And, and here's the idea, Christianity, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what is all of this about? Well, Christianity is not about a group of people that have mentally assented to certain realities about the historical Jesus. And it's not a group of people that have mentally assented to certain theological truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's so much more than that. That Christianity at its basic core are people that have come to know and love and treasure Jesus Christ above everything else in this world. That to be a Christian means that he is the one that we want. We're no longer most concerned about money. We're no longer most concerned about uh, finding just a good, happy life. We're no, we're no longer most concerned about this or that. Like Jesus is the thing that we want. And listen, this is not like to delight in Jesus, to desire Jesus, to praise Jesus. This is not like varsity Christianity. This is just basic, everyday, normal Christianity. Do you get that? So don't think of two classes of people. You've got people that believe in Jesus, and then you've got people that really, really love Jesus. 
There's just one class of Christian. It's people that have, no, have moved from desiring all of this stuff in the world and have set their eyes on Jesus. He's the one that they're after. He's the one that they're, they're, they want. Jesus for the Christian is no longer a means to an end. He is the end himself. And what I mean is like, you, you might kind of initially come check out Christianity because you wanna find a better marriage, or you wanna find a spouse, or you wanna get a better life. Listen, but for the Christian, Jesus is no longer this thing that you use to get the thing that you want. Jesus himself is the thing that you want. Normal, basic Christianity. The second thing we see, in addition to them extolling the name of Jesus, praising the name of Jesus, is this idea of confession and repentance. Now, confession, if you're not a Christian, is like the most terrifying thing in the world. How could you really open up and let people see the real you? But for us as Christians, Jesus on the cross when he was hanging there, he exposed us as sinful people that were in fact so broken that Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven. So for us, confession is not like the most terrifying thing. Confession is just us simply bringing the real version of us to God And just saying, hey, we know that we're broken. We know that we're sinful. Thank you for loving us. We are now embracing you. We're allowing the light of God's grace and gospel to shine in. We're turning away from all these things that we used to love. And now we're turning to you because you're the thing that we want now. So this is just basic, essential Christianity. People extolling the name of Jesus and then people confessing and repenting of sin. This is not revival. That's just like normal Christianity. Now, there, there are other aspects of the story, and I want to point them out to you, that, that actually are more described as revival. This is more like dramatic and, and incredible. Like, here's the first thing that we see happening. We see extraordinary miracles taking place. Look, look again at verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. There are two kinds of miracles. There are miracles, that's like, wow, that was amazing. That shouldn't have happened. That's really impressive that God just showed up that way. And then there are extraordinary miracles. And you're like, I I don't even have a grid for that. I don't have a category like Paul's handkerchief, healing people who are sick and casting out demons. Like that is an extraordinary, powerful move of God. It was very unusual. Now, can I just say something here? Like this is not a, a kind of manipulative televangelist that's saying, hey, I will send you my sweaty handkerchief if you will just sow into my ministry. You know, $333 a month, it's yours. It'll bless your life. BMWs will flow from heaven like crazy. Like, like this is not what the Apostle Paul is doing. Paul is so filled with the Spirit of God and revival was happening in this city so that even his handkerchief had the presence and power of God on it and people who were sick were getting healed. People who are, who are uh, being oppressed and attacked by demons were getting set free. Like darkness was getting pressed back, pushed back in profound and powerful ways. That's unusual. That's not everyday Christianity. That's revival. By the way, that stuff has not ceased from happening. There's nothing in scripture, literally nothing that you could point to that would lead us to believe that God no longer delights to do these things. If anything, reading this verse, I don't understand it, but I want to be a part of a move of God where this stuff happens. Here's the second thing. There's the tangible fear of God on the entire region of Ephesus. 
the tangible fear of God. You see this in verse 17. It says, and this became known. All these crazy moves of God became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Fear fell upon them all. I think sometimes we like sanitize and, and kind of fix that, that up. And, and we say, well, the fear of God doesn't mean that you're like actually afraid of God. That would be crazy. Like all it means is, you know, you respect him a lot. And I would just want to say like there, there is an element where, yes, we respect him a lot. But if you've ever read the Bible from start to finish, the, the, the takeaway for me is not that this God is like my pal and my buddy, but that he is this holy, blazing, powerful thing, very similar to our son, that though it is the best thing for our world, it is very dangerous. And I can't just in my sinfulness draw close unless I'm going through Jesus to him. The fear of God is where people were just, their their jaws were dropping and they're standing in awe of God going, he is bigger and more terrifying and more weighty than we ever imagined. He's not a God to be trifled with. I don't know if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's classic works, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't, repent of your sins and read that book. It's it's great. Um, But one of the things that he says in that book that I I find interesting is the kids are asking these beavers about Aslan. Aslan is this, this ferocious lion. So they're asking the beavers, tell us about Aslan. And one of the kids says, is he safe? Like, I mean, as a lion, he's, is he safe? And the beavers, they laugh and they say, no, 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 he's not safe but he is good. And this is the God of the Bible. Is he safe? Well, let's define what we mean by safe. He is profoundly good, but he's weighty. And in times of revival, it's not just a handful of Christians in a city that feel this. In times of revival, an entire region feels this. Here's another thing that we see happening. Dramatic and widespread repentance. Dramatic and widespread repentance. Now, here's why I say dramatic. Um, You can't have real Christianity apart from repentance. Churchy word, what does it mean? Repentance means that you turn away from sin, things that the Bible classify as sin. And let me just say this, that God is not up in heaven as this cosmic killjoy that does not want us to have any fun. And he's labeled all the really fun things that are gonna bring your life pleasure and joy as sin. Those are off limits. That's not at all what's happening. That God, the creator of ultimate reality, who wired us as humans to, to run on him the same way that a car runs on gasoline, has said, these things will hurt you and kill you, and I will bring you life. If you pursue these things, you're running away from me, and you're not getting the thing that your heart really wants. Repentance means that we acknowledge, you know what, I really am wrong, and he really is right, and I'm aligning myself to his ultimate reality. It's to not just acknowledge that you're wrong, but it's to leave that old sin behind and embrace Jesus for who he says that he is. Now, every Christian is is experiencing repentance. You can't be a Christian without this. This is how you turn to Jesus is through repentance. But in times of revival, the repentance is dramatic and it's widespread. 
And here's what I mean. Like we saw, they, they, they brought these magic books. And if you don't know much about the culture of Ephesus, by the way, I don't know why you would know a lot about the culture of Ephesus. But if you study the culture of Ephesus, magic books were a big deal to them. That's where they sought the good life. It was like, if I can cast these spells and incantations on people or myself, then I can live a life that's blessed and good. I can experience the good life. These were very expensive books, cost a lot of money. When they become Christians, no one has to urge them to do this. They're so gripped by the power of God that they bring these things that they were used to looking to for the good life and meaning and significance, and they burn them, count them as worthless so that they can instead embrace Jesus as God. This is dramatic, six million dollars worth of books they're burning to embrace God for who he says he is. And then finally, we see the kingdom of God continuing to advance in profound ways. Verse 20, it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, here's what I want you to see. What's happening in in, in Acts 19 is God in many ways flexing and showing how, how amazing and powerful he is over the city of Ephesus. It's God pouring out the, the spirit in powerful, unique ways that, that's not just average basic Christianity. This is tremendous. This is unique. This is real revival. And what I want you to see next is this actually is going to impact the city in tangible ways. So look at this. Look at verse 20, 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Uh, Artemis was this, this goddess, and, and, and there was this huge, beautiful temple in Ephesus. It was like the, the, the icon of Ephesus. And people from all over the world would travel to this temple. And this guy, Demetrius, he was crafting these little versions, these shrines of Artemis and selling them. And he was bringing a lot of business to a lot of different people. Verse 25, these he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can we just pause? That feels like a pretty airtight logical argument to me, doesn't it? Like he's telling people that gods made with hands are not gods and they're believing it, right? Now we can be like, we can have what C.S. Lewis calls cultural snobbery and be like, those people were so dumb back then. We're so much smarter now. But listen, we do the same thing on a spiritual level. We craft and make God the way we want him to be, you know? And, and it's like, well, we'll take out all the things we don't like about God and we'll form the God that we want. God's made with our hands are not God's, right? We're just as guilty as they are. Now look at what happens, verse 27. He says, there's, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now look at what happens. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion 
And they rushed together into the theater. It's a beautiful theater. Archaeologists have uncovered it. There's about 20,000 people could fit inside of this. They rush into the theater and they're dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who are Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd like a crazy man, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who are friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this riot continues to happen. I'm not gonna read the rest of it. Eventually, the town clerk calms everybody down and quells the the riot. But this riot, the whole city is thrown into a confusion because they are nervous that the economic status of their city is going to be impacted and changed because so many people are becoming Christians. All right, now, now look at me. Like, the equivalent of this happening today would be if the porn industry started a massive riot and started just suing the church like crazy because so many people were becoming Christians that the porn industry was losing their financial impact. They were, they were not making enough money. Like that's the same thing that's happening. Like they're nervous. They're saying, Artemis, this God, like Paul is having such dramatic effect on our city. So many people are becoming Christians. We're losing money and the temple might even come into disrepute altogether. Here's the point. The church in Acts 19 was actually having an impact on the city. It was actually making a difference on the city. And when I read this this week and as I was praying through this, I couldn't get past this because I I kept contrasting the church then with the church today and not just capital C church everywhere, but like the church in Oklahoma. I kept thinking about us today in Oklahoma and, and this church then, and I just had this, this angst to start building in me. And it's like, man, why don't we see impact like this? Why don't we see difference like this? Like, like Christianity, why doesn't it matter today in Oklahoma? Like it mattered and was making a difference in Acts 19. Now here's the interesting thing. By all external appearances, when you look at the church, when you look at the church in Oklahoma, the movement of Christianity in Oklahoma, it looks like we have been massively successful, doesn't it? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're like, you guys are everywhere, right? Um, I had a friend recently from Brea, California come in that's in the Orange County area. Alan Frow's his name and he pastors a church there. His son is thinking about going to a university here. So him and his son traveled here. He'd never been before. He'd heard stories of the Bible Belt but had never made it quite to Oklahoma. So he gets here and from the 10 minute car ride to the coffee shop that we met at, the very first thing that he said, his eyes were this big. He was like, bro, there are churches everywhere out here, literally everywhere. He's like, I can't, I I lost count. I was counting them on my way, 10 minute drive. Like there was one corner, he says, like, like I'm like, you know, I've never seen this before. There's, there was one corner where there were four churches on the corner. Can you believe that? And if you're like me and you're born and raised here, you kind of forget, like there are a lot of churches here, aren't there? Looks like we're massively successful when it comes to the movement of Christianity in Oklahoma. And by the way, these churches are not 
empty churches. Now, there are some empty buildings that are churches scattered across our state for sure, but this is not like a state where there's just a lot of empty churches. There's actually a lot of churches with with vibrancy and with life, and there's a lot of churches where, where it looks, all the external appearances, everything would say life is here. In fact, a recent Gallup poll revealed that Oklahoma is number 10 in the country for highest church attendance, tied with Texas and Georgia. I, I actually expected us to be higher, but we're number 10 in church attendance. So what that means is we're not a state where most people are not attending church. Like we're a state where we're number 10 in the country. If you want it, it's there. This, this movement of Christianity in Oklahoma has been massively successful, or has it? Because when you, when you get a little deeper, and when you look below the surface, what you find is, is actually on the external, it looks like there's a lot of life and health and growth, but deep down, Christianity, and I don't wanna be a Debbie Downer here. By the way, all the people in the room named Debbie, I sincerely apologize. It's just a, it's just a saying. I, I don't wanna be a Debbie Downer here, but Christianity in Oklahoma is having little to no impact. When you compare Acts 19 and other stories in this book with the church in Oklahoma, what are we doing? We're experiencing a disappearance of real, vibrant, powerful Christianity that we read about in the Bible. In fact, in his amazing book, Mark Sayers uh, wrote wrote a book called Disappearing Church that I think everybody should buy and read. Mark Sayers he puts his finger on this reality really well. Here's what he says. He says, in the West, we are witnessing a number of disappearances, the ongoing disappearance of the Judeo-Christian worldview from Western culture, the disappearance of a large segment of believers who across the Western world are leaving churches, walking away from active faith or faith altogether during their young adult years, the disappearance of a mode of church, engagement characterized by commitment, resilience and sacrifice among many Western believers. Now listen to what he says. He says, in its place, a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumeristic framework. If that does not describe Christianity in Oklahoma, I really don't know what does. Now listen, there, are some, there, are, there is some life happening. There is some vibrancy happening. But by and large, the movement of Christianity is best described as sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumeristic framework. We have fallen a far, far away from what we read about in this book. Mark Sayers, he goes on to say this. Listen, he says, some churches, while keeping their theology and their traditional church structures alongside of a strategy of making their communications, worship, and aesthetics culturally relevant, find themselves experiencing another kind of disappearance. The church as an entity stays and even grows in size and influence. Yet the majority of its members disappear annually to be replaced by another class of attenders. The size of the church stays the same or even grows, yet the annual turnover of attendees can run up between 60 to 90%. Such turnover may be sustainable in the short term, but one must wonder how such an approach can work long term. And then he says this, he says, such churches are in danger of becoming what could be called flash mob churches. 
Churches that are able to harness, harness social networking and energy to gather an, an impressive crowd, but who soon disappear. And I just want to pause here and say this, like the desire of the pastors of this church is not to be a flash mob church. We don't want to try to harness social power and influence and gather this big crowd that doesn't actually have any impact in the city. We actually want to, to, by the grace and power of God, be a part of a movement where there's revival happening and there's, there's things shifting and there's things changing. And it's not just a few, but, but all across Oklahoma, people are turning away from old ways of living and they're embracing Jesus as God. That's what we're after. That's what we want. There's a tragic gap, isn't there, between the church today and the church then? if we could just level with each other and be honest in this moment, can we acknowledge that many of us don't feel this gap on a corporate capital C church level? Many of us feel this gap on an individual, very personal level, deep inside of your own soul. Here's what I mean. And I don't think I'm the only one, but like, see if this sounds familiar to some of your experience. If you're a follower of Jesus, many of us feel a growing level of apathy and lack of desire for God. It's not like a static apathy. It's a growing level. Beautiful truths that we sing on Sundays when we gather, beautiful truths that we hear preached, beautiful truths that we read about, they barely produce a flicker inside of our hearts. Often our confession of sin, when we actually acknowledge our sin before God, it lacks the weight and the gravity of real conviction from the Holy Spirit. We're confessing because we know we're supposed to, but we're not really convicted by God of what we're doing. Sin is slowly, for many of us, becoming less sinful. It's becoming less offensive. It's becoming less gross. Am I the only one that has found that my heart doesn't naturally drift towards more of love for God? But my heart naturally drifts away. And rather than me having this vibrant love for Jesus that just stays and grows naturally, what I've found is that it's easy for sin over time to actually, rather than it becoming something I repent of, it becomes something that I want to hold on to and embrace and make a home inside of my heart for. And then maybe you can relate to this just an incredible difficulty when it comes to trying to read the word consistently. Incredible difficulty to spend time in prayer if it's not around a meal with a family. It's like, like the word and prayer being neglected by me. Maybe that's just me, but maybe some of you in this room can relate to these realities. Maybe I'm not the only one standing on a stage saying this. Maybe, maybe you are in Shawnee or you're at South, you're in Edmond and you're saying the same thing. Like my heart is growing cold. It's growing dull. I, I, I know that I, I, I used to hunger for God. Now I don't even hunger to hunger for God. What do we need? Well, here's the need of the hour for many of us, maybe all of us. It's revival. The need of the hour is revival. We need God to pour out the Holy Spirit on us in fresh and new ways. So that we're not just looking back to a time when we used to be vibrantly in love with Jesus, but we're actually experiencing more of that now today. 
We need a fresh touch from God. We need our hearts to to be woken up out of the sleep. We need our churches to be woken up out of the sleep. We need people in our cities all across Oklahoma to be woken up out of their sleep, both those who are dead in sin for God to make them alive and those who are sleepy Christians to be shaken awake again by God. J.I. Packer, he he defines revival this way. He says that revival is a work of God by his spirit through his word, bringing the spiritually dead to living faith in Christ and renewing the inner life of Christians who have grown slack and sleepy. Revival is God stirring the hearts of his people, visiting them, coming to dwell with them, returning with them, pouring out his spirit on them to quicken their consciences, show them their sins, and exalt his mercy before their eyes. I need that, maybe more than anyone else that I know. I need that. And I just have to think, like, if I need that as a pastor where part of my job is actually spent reading the Bible and part of my job is actually spent praying, like, that's part of my actual job. What about those of you that you're, you're working 50, 60 hours a week? There's all these cares and concerns. And I get it. It's super hard. You must feel some of this too. We are in desperate need of God to move in this way. I've been reading about revival lately, and it's just been, it's been like, I can't say that today I stand up as someone that's hungry for God, but I can say that I'm, I'm hungry to be hungry for God. And as I've been reading these revivals, I've just been like he- hearing stories going, that's what we need. This is it. This is what we need. This is like, if we could just give our lives to seeing this happen, this would be enough. The Great Awakening. Let me just read one of these stories to you. 1730s to 1740s, uh, Jonathan Edwards was powerfully used by God and and one of the most important revivals in American history. And, And here's what he says as he's describing revival in his town in the Northeast. He said, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Man, wouldn't you love to see God move like that, not just inside of your own heart, not just inside of Frontline Church, but across our state? Well, how do we pursue revival? How does revival happen? How does this take place? Well, let me just close out with this. Like, this is the irony of revival, that revival is a sovereign work of God. It's something that he does on his time. It's not something that we can like, you know, pull the lever and press a few buttons and then, and then we can force the hand of God to bring revival. It says in John chapter three that the Holy Spirit, who is like incredibly active inside of revival, that the Holy Spirit is like the wind, And you can't force the wind to blow. You can't do anything to make wind blow. And yet there's this other reality that even though revival is a sovereign work of God, revival is never something that God brings apart from human means. What I mean is God always uses people to bring about his purposes. Always, every time. He never does hardly anything apart from using real people to do it. 
And here's what we see in Acts 20. I wish I had time to show you, but in Acts 20, Paul, he shows up to the city in Ephesus. He spends over two years here. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's not just chilling, hanging out. Paul is actively, it says, preaching the gospel of the grace of God. He was actively preaching the grace of God, and he was also calling people to repent of sin and place faith in Jesus. And God, in his sovereignty, he met Paul as Paul was preaching, and revival started to happen in the city. So what can we do? Well, if you think of the church like a sailboat in the middle of the ocean, you and I cannot get the wind to blow, right? But there is a thing that we can do. We can hoist up the sails so that when the wind blows, we are ready to respond to what God wants to do. And so think of, of, of posturing yourself for revival. It's not something that we can demand that God does, but we can actually posture ourselves for this great work of God. And I just wanna give you three quick things to close uh, to, to help you hoist the sails in your own heart for personal revival. Here's the first one. Please just be honest with yourself regarding the state of your own heart. Be honest with yourself. Like, what good is it going to do if you walk in pretending that everything is okay? What good is it going to do if you walk in just pretending that, that your, your love for Jesus is through the roof? And maybe you're here and that's you. But for many of us, you walked in and really you, you dragged yourself in today. And what you feel is not this intense desire for God. What you feel is like apathy, and tiredness, and spiritual dullness, and, and as you're just not, you're like, even all this talk about revival is almost exhausting to you, because it's like, oh, but that would mean I would have to, like, respond in powerful ways. Hey, here's the good news about revival, that revival is not for people that are killing it. Revival is for people who are being killed. Revival is not for people that have it all together. Revival is for people that start to acknowledge that they are in desperate need because they don't have anything together. Revival is not for people that have a high desire for God. Revival is for people that realize they don't have a high desire for God. The first step of hoisting the sails in your own heart for God to move in powerful ways, it's just to be honest and acknowledge the state of your heart. J.I. Packer, he says this, he says, different concerns drive Christians to renew their vows of of consecration to God and to seek his face. That is to cry in sustained prayer for his attention, his favor, and his help in present need. Do you feel like you need God's attention, favor, and help right now? Well, listen, he says, the occasion may be guilt, fear, a sense of impotence or failure, discouragement, nervous exhaustion and depression, assaults of temptation and battles with indwelling sin, ominous illness, experiences of rejection or betrayal, longing for God, and many other things. If you fit in those categories, you're going, man, today I'm depressed. Today I'm sick. Today I'm in need. Today I'm nervous. Today I'm overwhelmed. Today I'm exhausted. Revival is for you. This is the first step, just acknowledging, being honest about the state of your heart. Here's the second thing to help hoist the sails in your own heart. Stop being content with the status quo of what's happening in Christianity and instead begin to pray for God to move in fresh ways in your own soul. Pray for God to move in fresh ways. I love this, Jonathan Edwards. He says, when God is about to bestow some great blessing on his church, it is often his manner in the first place so to order things in his providence as to show his church their great need of it. 
and to bring them into distress for one of it and so put them upon crying earnestly to him for it. Whenever you start to just be okay with, with acknowledging, man, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I'm not going to just pretend that this is like Christianity is supposed to be in God's heart. And I'm not going to, to just pretend there's not a problem. I'm not going to embrace what's current reality. I'm going to start asking God to move in my own soul because I desperately need it. That's how you know that like fresh moves of God are coming. And then finally, here's the third thing. And I don't know if this is more timely for us than it is right now. Embrace a lifestyle of repentance and faith. I think so often like out of one part of our mouth, we say we want revival, but out of the other part of our mouth, we're actually saying, but we still want sin. And you actually can't have both, right? Repentance, churchy word, I know, but it means to, to renounce, to acknowledge that you're wrong. It's to come to God and it's to give him your sin, right? It's to say, I'm wrong and you're right and I don't wanna do this stuff anymore. I wanna follow you. I wanna trust you. I wanna know you. That's what it is to repent of sin and place faith in Jesus. Can I just say this to you? That repentance is not like getting the tetanus shot. It's not like, oh, I did that 10 years ago. I should be good for another two years. Repentance is like breathing for the human. You breathe in, you breathe out. As the Christian, you breathe in repentance, you breathe out faith in Jesus. It's just a part of our life. Like, there is so much in my life and in your life that we need to acknowledge. That is wrong. And this is not okay. And God, I say I want you, but in so many ways I don't. It's, it's, it's turning again to him. Would you help me trust and follow you? If you're not a Christian, this is what we're all trying to do. No one's killing it here. We're just trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus on the day to day. And you're invited into that too. So here's the thing. The, the, the God of the Bible is the greatest catalyst for revival because he's not sitting up in heaven stoic, unmoved by what's happening in your life, that he actually sees you and he knows you and he sees what is going on. He sees what's going wrong. And rather than him being unmoved, he was so moved that he left heaven and he came to the earth and he lived the life that none of us ever could have lived. And he died a brutal death and he did it in our place. He took our sin and our shame and he was crushed so that you and I could be forgiven. And then he rose again and, and he's alive in heaven like no other God that you could create would ever be more passionate about pursuing you and I. No God would ever be so moved with compassion and love to give his only life so that you and I could have life, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be adopted into his family. This God right now is not sitting unmoved. He's noticing and he's moving towards us right now. So if you're not a Christian, that's the hope. You don't have to go get his attention. He's trying to get your attention. You don't have to go find him. He's trying to find you. Come to him today.